Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Great. Uh, so uh, my name is Liam Delaney. I'm head of the Psychology and Behavioural Science Department here at LSE. It's a real pleasure and privilege to welcome people here in person at the LSE. Welcome to LSE and people from all around the world uh, online. Welcome today for this is a really special occasion. I think I was just the first person to buy a copy of uh, A Theory of Everyone, which cost me £22, which was money well spent, I think. Uh, so thank you to Michael for, for writing it. Uh, it's a really great occasion. Um, Michael is my colleague here at LSE, and a very valued colleague. Uh, he's written some of the most interesting papers, I think, in social science in the last uh, decade. So this book, while being a real page turner, it's written at such a, a brilliant pace. It's also based on real scholarship, I mean, really interesting ideas around uh, human cultural evolution. I did smile a little bit. I think at some point in the last 10 years, as, as an emerging scholar, someone would have sat Michael down and said, you know, you need to focus on a particularly, you know, a narrow area of psychology, <laughs> learn more and more about it. And he clearly wasn't listening, or he heard something different from that conversation. So we've got a theory of everyone, who we are, how we got here, and where we're going. But I think there's a serious point. He's drawing from as I said, real scholarship on cultural evolution, and we need people that get out and talk about some of these issues, how humans are going to cooperate across the globe in the face of some of the major challenges that we face. I think it's fair to say Michael presents a very optimistic vision, or at least puts forward some very optimistic thoughts on how cultural evolution will work. I think there'll be many audiences for this book. I think there'll be many debates around policy. I think one thing that brought a smile to my face when I read it is I could picture a 14 or a 15 year old picking up this book uh, and just getting excited about social science, about psychology, about its contribution to the world. And it's written in, in really the great tradition of complex ideas being translated to broad audiences. So thank you very much, Michael. It's an absolutely superb book. And I'd also like to welcome Matthew Said, who will need not much introduction to most of you. So Matthew's a, a very well-known, very well-respected broadcaster, uh, science writer and international champion table tennis player, which I learned today when I was researching him. I'm glad you, I don't call it ping pong, occasionally I'll get into it, it makes it sound like a parlour game. We know it's a globally competitive sport, right? Yes, and has written many best-selling books, including uh, Rebel Ideas, which is outside. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Michael to introduce his book. And as I said, I'm absolutely thrilled at this occasion to, to launch it here at LSE. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. You know, when you, you write a book, it takes you a long time, it took me three years, the pandemic got in the way, you put it out there, you don't know how it's going to be received. You have no idea. You know, you'll have a launch event and maybe, you know, your, your grad students and postdocs and lab turn up and, and that's it. It's so wonderful to see so many people and thank you so much for all coming. So, uh, as Liam alluded, uh, the title of the book is A Theory of Everyone, very narrow, limited scope, as you can tell. Um, one of the pieces of advice I got when writing a book is to not write a book because you feel like it's that time in your career or, you know, it's like it's a thing you want to do, you want to try to make some money, terrible idea to make money actually. Um, write a book when it's bursting out of you, when you can't not write the book, when you've got something to say and it's irritating you so much that if you didn't say it, like you're just lying awake at night, it's like, I just want people to know this stuff. That is what it felt like for the last three years getting this out and that's what kind of propelled me uh, to get it out. The message that I wanted to get across is that we are at a point in the social sciences, the human and social sciences, that is truly a revolution. 
where we now understand the world and we're able to separate sense from nonsense. We're able to make sense of chaos. And that means that we can begin to turn that science into technology. We can begin to think through policies. And the only way to see that is to kind of think, take a big picture, look across all of these disciplines who are kind of like feeling the elephant, feeling the trunk of the elephant, feeling its tail, feeling its tusk, and seeing different parts of it, but missing the elephant in the room, if you like, missing that big picture. And that's really what I wanted to convey in this book. So the book opens with a quote from uh, the American novelist David Foster Wallace, who says, tells a story. He tells a story. It was, uh, it was part of a commencement address at Kenyon College. He says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to be an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually, one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Now, in my field, cultural evolution, this quote is often invoked to describe culture, right? It's, it's the water in which we swim. It's the things, the beliefs, the values, the assumptions that we make about the world that we never think about until we meet someone who comes from a different place, who is maybe from a different generation, and who holds very different assumptions about the world. And then we realize, oh, I, can, I notice the water. I notice some of these things that are really inside me and, and not a natural part of the world. But in this case, the quote isn't about culture, which is strange because I study culture. It's about something that's even more fundamental and arguably even more ignored. It refers to energy. So I, I should say a little bit, you know, my background is a little bit strange in, in many different ways. Uh, I started, I didn't start life, I started my educational career as an engineer. So I was thinking about these kinds of things. I was interested in applying psychological and behavioral science to engineering. I was a, an undisciplined scholar, if you like. I looked across disciplines and I was interested in. It was only this that I kind of noticed that a lot of the puzzles that we were dealing with in the human and social sciences actually required us to, to think about energy. And there's a, a particular graph that has obsessed me. It has obsessed me, it has bothered me, I've thought about it. it, it links to so many different things that I deal with in the world. And it is this graph here. This is a graph of human progress in pretty much any metric that you might care to graph, right? Life expectancy, uh, child survival rates, GDP per capita, percentage of people not living in extreme poverty, our energy capture, uh, living in a free society, whatever you want. And there's something really odd about this graph, right? If you look across this graph, so we got time on the, on the, uh, the x-axis here, and if you look across, all of those things that they forced you to learn about in school, so the fall of the, of the Roman Empire, uh, the, the rise of Genghis Khan, the Black Death in Europe, uh, the Renaissance, the Scientific Revolution, the Enlightenment, the graph is flat. The graph is flat. And then suddenly, we hit the Industrial Revolution, and by every metric that we might care about, the graph shoots up into the sky. It flies off into infinity. And it's, it makes, as Ian Morris, the historian, famous historian Ian Morris puts it, it makes a mockery of everything that came before. Everything that came before was a blip in terms of any of these metrics. And that needs an explanation. In our everyday lives, we live in this world, this world here, the peak of this, of this, of this chart here. We no longer even think about it, right? This situation here, where I'm standing in a room full of strangers is freaking weird. And I mean, it's weird along many metrics. So it's weird in terms of our species. 
If this was a room full of chimps, this would be a room full of maimed and dead chimps. If this was 200 years ago even, this would be odd. We're from different places in the world. The LSE is a very diverse place. It would be, it would be dangerous, let's put it that way. Right? There would be threats in the air. And geographically, it is still strange today. So I can give this talk here in the LSE in the UK. I can give this talk in Australia, Austria. But you know, in the Congo uh, or Afghanistan, there, there are places where this might be a dangerous thing to do, to just gather a bunch of strangers into a room together. So Steven Pinker and others have described this as the decline in violence, uh, the rise in cooperation. And there are various explanations, but none of them really sit. There are various explanations that say something like enlightenment values, or uh, it's simply that we're intelligent enough to realize that by working together, we can get more. But if we were intelligent enough, why did it take so long? And why did it happen so quickly? The book tackles this problem. It answers that question. And then it says, what can we do with those answers to, 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 to face the world that we live in today? At the center of this book are four laws of life. You know, I, I, did, a, I did a podcast recently. Uh, uh, it was with a physicist, um, Mindscape, and um, Sean Carroll. And I have to apologize. I mean, these are not Newtonian laws. These are lenses with which we to view the world, right? But they are fundamental, and they apply just as much to bacteria as businesses, from cells to societies. And these four laws are the law of energy. What really happened in the Industrial Revolution was an energy revolution, the likes of which we had not seen since the Agricultural Revolution, and before that, fire. These revolutions unlock copious amounts of energy and allow us to multiply human ingenuity. Everything that we do today your ability to come here to this lecture, cross in, in cars, in, in planes, in, uh, in trains, all of that required energy. You literally, four billion people are alive today due to something called the Haber-Bosch process, which takes nitrogen from the air and hydrogen in, uh, in natural gas and turns it into ammonia and literally produces food that half the planet is alive thanks to that. We are eating our fossil fuels. What we discovered was stored solar energy. So plants, through photosynthesis, converted this to chemical energy. It was compressed into dense batteries. Peat turned to black rock and coal. Uh, algae and zooplankton turned into oil and natural gas. And we used that energy in the Industrial Revolution to multiply our efforts. Everything that we could do, we could do faster, we could do it better, and it incentivized us to work together. But by, because by working together, we could create our greatest achievements and also our worst atrocities. We could outcompete, we could colonize, we could exploit one another. So that's the law of energy, and it describes the ceiling on human progress. Underneath that is the law of innovation. So we discovered these technologies, but we also discovered ways to use that energy more efficiently. In fact, when energy is present, it allows us to discover ways to light bulbs, for example. Right? You know how often uh, one of the things you're supposed to do to save the environment is turn off the light? Have you heard this before? Don't. Just leave it on. It doesn't matter. LEDs at this point are so efficient, they're close to 100% efficient, that they are blips. They, they mean nothing, actually, relative to even a single flight across to anywhere. Yeah? We use energy more efficiently. We do more with less. But there's a limit to that. There's a limit to innovation. At some point, there's a certain amount of joules, a certain amount of watts that's required to keep a room hot, that's required to drive a car, that's required to produce food, tractors, and so on. But the law of innovation says that we find ways to use that energy that is available to us, that excess energy. 
The law of innovation and the law of energy together create a space of the possible. You can think about it as like a ceiling and a floor. And within that space, there's a process by which we learn to develop technologies, but also to work together, to cooperate in ever larger groups. The law of cooperation says that the scale at which we work together is the scale at which the per cell or the per person level of energy is higher than it would be in a larger group or a smaller group. If I, want to, if I wanted to start a project, for example, I would love to write all those papers by myself and win a Nobel Prize. But if I'm a physicist and I need a large hadron collider, I'm going to need thousands of people. I would love to start a business and keep all the equity for myself, but I, I can't. I have to work with other people. I need employees. I need to work with uh, suppliers. I need to take uh, uh, funders to, to help secure all this. Right? So law of cooperation says that is the level. Now, we don't always reach that level, but that is the maximum level of cooperation one would expect in that system defined by that space of the possible. And the final law, the law of evolution, says that the way that we navigate this space, either as cells outcompeting other cells as they grow into organisms and animals, or as societies of companies and, and, and countries and governments and so on, is through this evolutionary, genetic and cultural evolutionary process that we discover ways that we can work together. We work, discover constitutions. We discover that liberal democracy might work better than an autocracy under most conditions, and so on. These four laws together, as I said, apply at every scale we find. But I'm mostly interested in the human scale. I'm interested in what's going on in society. In part one of the book, I go through these laws of life and I describe the human animal, us. How it is that a chip-like common ancestor five to seven million years ago went down a very different trajectory and became a new kind of animal. I describe what that says about human intelligence and the way that intelligence has been growing and expanding and going up, now kind of plateauing. The way in which those brains designed for learning from one another innovate in a particular way. How we are created by culture and the way that we work together at different scales. At the core of what it means to be this new kind of animal is a theory that's referred to as dual inheritance theory, uh, gene culture coevolution, cultural evolution, the extended evolutionary synthesis. It goes under different names, but the thrust of it is this. All animals on Earth, when they discover a new environment, use genes, genetic evolution, to survive. And they figure things out over the course of their lives. So genetic evolution works like this. Think of human skin color, right? It's well adapted to latitude, the amount of UV radiation. If you're in a northern latitude, you want to lose some of that melanin so that you get enough sunlight so that you synthesize enough vitamin D. There's not a lot of sunlight in Norway. If you're in Australia, you want to protect yourself from skin cancer. You don't solve that through individual learning, like going out in the sun or not. It's a genetic solution. Animals also learn through individual learning. You figure out that the water is here, the water is there, the food is here, and so on. Okay? But humans have a new way of learning. We learn from one another, and we learn from the accumulated knowledge over thousands and thousands of years that you discover at school, through your society, in universities like this. I'll give you an example of this software. So another way to say this is that the secret to human success is not in our hardware. Just as much as if you want to understand Excel or you want to understand ChatGPT, you don't look in the CPU or the GPU, you have to look in the software. If you want to understand human intelligence, you have to look in your software. And then you need to think about how that software is written and how it can be improved and upgraded. Here's an example. You assume many things about people that we can reason, that we can count. But many of these features are actually delivered to us by our education system. Take counting, for example. Many societies today and over history would count like this. One, two, three, many. 
And then we discovered we found a way of counting by using just what I did there, body parts like fingers. There are many different cultures that have different counting systems. We use 10 because of our 10 fingers. It's not a great number, to be honest. 16 would be better because it maps back to decibel. There's nothing special about 10. We also use stones, think calculus, limestone, right, as a way to count. We put notches into clay. But we had a metaphor for numbers, or at least natural numbers. But zero isn't obvious on your body. Where is zero? Right? Zero stones is zero of everything else. So it took centuries before we went from that to discovering the concept of zero. And it wasn't until the 17th and 18th century that negative numbers became obvious. And to do that, we used a number line. We had to move away from objects, and we moved to a movement and position on a number line, which made obvious not only zero, but negative numbers, and later an orthogonal line to create things like a complex plane. Many things about us. Have you ever taken the Stroop test where you have to say the, the colors of words? Have you ever seen this before? If you were a psychologist from Venus and you came down to Earth and you saw this, you would say, literacy is a human instinct, but color perception is not, and you would be wrong. That is part of your software. We know for a fact that's learned, but so too is numeracy, so too is much of our reason, so too is much of our intelligence. As that body of knowledge that we acquired from accumulated wisdom from our parents and grandparents and eventually our schools and books and so on accumulated, our brains got so large that they became too difficult to birth. We couldn't give birth to these brains anymore. And that completely changed our society. It's like the curse of Eve. We ate from the tree of knowledge and birth became too difficult. So this is, for example, a chimp, head size versus the birth canal, no problem. Uh, this is uh, afarensis. You can start to see it's getting a little bigger. For humans, you can see, you have to compress that thing and squeeze it out. You should thank your mothers. It was an incredible feat that they went through to create you. <laughs> it, it's incredible. Now, if you look, even today, just to show you what a feat that is, this is some data from the medical literature. Doctors used to think that uh, you know, big babies were difficult to birth, or maybe it was totally random. It, it turns out it is big heads. So this is a graph of the probability of an emergency intervention, such as an emergency cesarean or an emergency instrumental birth. And on the bottom is head circumference as a percentile. And you can see that once you hit about the 85th percentile, it just shoots off into space. Right? Bigger heads are more difficult to birth. And that also shows you that, there's, that bigger heads are great if you can birth them. There is a small correlation with the ability to store and manage information. But that wasn't the only way that humans did this. We extended our childhoods. Right? We, uh, we extended our childhoods to the point where today right, we've delayed it so that now it's not so much giving birth to a bigger head. Caesareans kind of relax that selection pressure. It's the ability to give birth at a later age. We did other things as well. We divided up the knowledge. We divided up the knowledge and became really clever at one small portion of the world and stupid at everything else. If, if civilization broke down and I suddenly had to like fix cars or work in a massage clinic or whatever, I would, I would struggle. I wouldn't get paid very well at all. Right? Because we specialize, and that created a collective brain. Although each of us is very specialized, as a collective, we are brilliant, and we're able to innovate. But we innovate through, if you like, crowd computing. We innovate by deferring the computation to the collective, where we are seeking out bits of information, gathering them in our heads, and something new is born. Ideas having sex, as Matt Ridley puts it. But underneath all of this, underneath this intelligence process, underneath this cooperation, underneath all of this, remains energy. Because with energy, 
It is worth getting together. Mining the, this country launched the Industrial Revolution on the back of cheap and available coal, easy and close to the ground. And it used that to create the largest empire the world had ever seen. It was kind of late to the empire game. It created the largest empire the world had ever seen. I'm speaking to you in English, not just because I'm in England. Many people around the world speak English. And it was on the back of energy that that happened. It paid to work together to use that to exploit horrifically other parts of the world with less energy and less cooperative. And it completely reshaped our world. Because our economy is not a perpetual motion machine consisting of what you buy and the money you earn going in a, in a perpetual cycle. It has inputs and it has outputs, and those inputs and outputs are fundamentally energy. There is a particular metric in the energy sciences that should freak you out, that should cause you to be very worried, and that can explain the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in. That can explain why it is that things have become so difficult, why it is that it feels like America is teetering, one of the world's most successful democracies, why it feels like this country is uh, not as good as it used to be. It's kind of like Great Britain to OK Britain, I guess. Right. There's, some, there's a metric, and it is called energy return on investment. It is the amount of energy it is required to get some amount of energy back. Energy output divided by energy input. It is a metric of excess energy, how much energy you get from a system. And if you look at the energy return on investment of our current energy technologies, they all look like a stat that I'm about to give you. This particular stat comes from oil discovery, but they all look like this. In 1919, one barrel of oil got you another thousand barrels. That means there's lots of excess energy, which means there's lots of innovation, which means things are cheap. We used to be able to take helicopter flights very cheaply until the price of oil went way up in the 1970s and 80s. By 1950, one barrel of oil found you another 100. And by 2010, one barrel of oil found you another five. Once you reach about three, what you want is a world in which the energy sector is small and the non-energy sector, all the stuff that we do with all of that excess energy is large. The holidays, the time with your friends, the amazing eating experiences, all of that stuff is large. But as our energy sector grows, it becomes more and more difficult to get energy. The economic growth slows down. Everything becomes more difficult. And that is the world that we find ourselves in. I'll give you an example of how this affects things like polarization and the fracturing of our societies. Right? I want you to imagine that economic growth is kind of like buses coming along. Okay? In this case, buses are you know, running on energy, so the analogy works nicely. Imagine they're coming every five minutes. Okay? And you're waiting in a queue. You're waiting in a queue, and you're kind of annoyed. Why is it that some people, the 1%, seem to have these bus passes that always get them to the front of the line? Why is it that some groups are allowing other groups in front of them? You know, they might be ethnic groups, unions, uh, occupational groups, whatever. Why is it that they're cooperating among themselves? But you know what? As long as buses are coming every five minutes and you're going to get a seat, you just mumble and grumble and you stay in line. But what happens when the rate of buses slows down? What happens when Eroy falls? What happens when those buses, one every hour? One every day. You better believe that that mumbling and grumbling becomes something more. 
The premise of this book is that underneath all of these specific solutions discovered by specific disciplines is a common cause. Not a, I make fun of books that I call uh, toti books, the one thing that explains everything. This isn't a toti book. This is really about the way that a bunch of different things are related to one another in a easily understood way. It is a periodic table of people. It is, it is the human and social sciences moving from alchemy to chemistry and allowing us to create some real technologies. So in part one of the book, I describe this theory. I explain it. There are other books that do this. I try to do it as excessively as possible. I want my kid's kindergarten teacher to be talking about this kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> part two of the book. It's optimistic. <laughs> as you'll see from part two, I am an optimist. I'm a, real, I'm a realist and an optimist. You know, the difference between a, um, a utopian optimist and a realist is the acceptance of constraints, the acceptance of where we are today and where we could be near us rather than we need to burn the whole thing down and start again. That's the difference. Part two of the book is about where we can go from where we are today. How we can reach a better place with small changes, but that are aligned with this theory of everyone, with these laws of life, with this new understanding. Things that you and I can advocate for to leave a better world, not only for ourselves, but for our children and every homo sapien to come from here on in. Chapter seven is about how we reunite humanity, heal those fractures, and find ways to work together in multicultural, diverse societies where we're not at each other's throats or pretending not to be. Part eight is about how we deal with governance in the 21st century. Democracies don't seem to work really well when we're not on the same page. If you're, if you're Denmark and you're like, you know, of course socialized medicine is the way to go, then you just pick the best person. But if you're America and you were broken on those fundamental bases, or in this country, pick any issue you want, then you don't pick the best person, you have to pick your person. That's a very different psychology. How do we shatter the glass ceiling of inequality? As you'll see in the book, inequality isn't necessarily a problem. People don't care about unequal outcomes. We're not looking for equality in that sense, but what we do care about is fairness. What we do care about is that people have an opportunity have you ever heard the phrase that, um, or the saying that uh, talent is equally distributed but opportunity is not? Have you heard that before? It's not strictly true. Talent is not completely equally distributed. But let me tell you, opportunity is definitely not. There's a long way to go there. And there are changes that we can make to create a world where we're taxing, for example, unproductive money and not taxing income or sales or things that are productive. Right? So that we're moving us to a better equilibrium. How do we trigger a creative explosion? Once we solve this problem of giving opportunities to more, think about the wasted talent all around the world. How do we bring those people to the table so that they can contribute or can invest in the things that push us forward, all of us as a species? How do we create that next level of abundance? How do we improve the internet, deal with what I call the fourth line of information, AI, machine learning? as a way to aggregate information. So in addition to genes, in addition to culture, in addition to individual learning, how do we deal with AI? And how do we become brighter? So the book deals with a bunch of things. It is, it is a big book. And honestly, I, I, what I would love is a discussion. I want people to engage with this. You know what, if, if I'm wrong, I assume, if you look at the endorsements for this book, it comes from across the board, from every discipline you can imagine. So I feel fairly comfortable on the facts. And if I'm wrong, I hopefully I'm at the margins. But I would like a discussion around this. So what kind of technologies, what kind of energy technologies have the right amount of Eroy to get us to the next level of human abundance?
Because as you'll learn in the book, abundance turns to scarcity as populations grow. And then we need that next level. When we discovered agriculture, our populations grew, we pushed hunter-gatherers to the margins, and then agriculturalists began fighting with one another. It took millions of years for those solar batteries, fossil fuels, to charge, and we depleted them in a matter of centuries. There are only a few technologies that can do this, if you look at the numbers, really, if you do some back-in-the-envelope calculations. If you have hydropower, you've got fast, large, fast-flowing rivers, please use them. They're amazing. They have very high yield rate. Solar, maybe, if you can solve the battery issue. There is a fusion reactor in the sky, and if we can use it better, that's great. But nuclear fission, unfortunately, was kind of halted by, by fears of an earlier generation. But to judge modern nuclear technologies on the 1950s technologies is like judging cars and airplanes. You wouldn't fly and you wouldn't drive if cars were still the way they were in the 1950s. We've come a long way, and we've come a long way on this, too. But really, the next level of human abundance is nuclear fusion. If we crack that and we begin to use the most abundant element in the universe, hydrogen, we would be the first generation of a galactic civilization. We would look to our descendants as, as backward as the Middle Ages looked to us. How do we build multicultural societies? How do we tackle what I call the paradox of diversity, which is that the elephant in the room is that diversity is the fuel for innovation. Immigrants are the lifeblood of a country. But diversity is divisive by definition. If we can't cross that divide and learn to talk to one another and learn to work with one another, then the fractures crack and society breaks and everything is worse for everyone. So I go through models like the mosaic model, the melting pot model, the no hyphen model, and I suggest that all of them are broken in one way and that they do not consider resources and energy. And what I call the umbrella model is a much better one. I deal with governance in the 21st century. I talk about the small changes we might be able to do now. For example, recreating systems that have worked, that have made America so uh, innovative. Uh, Justice Brandeis referred to the states as laboratories. They, they try different things. And if it works, it bubbles to the top. And if it fails, it fails at a state level. Silicon Valley works the same way. It is not a bastion of success. It's a graveyard of failure. But the few successes, the Apples, the Amazons, the Alphabets, they pay for the rest. How do we design our societies in a similar way where we can reduce the risk and make it a local level and bubble up solutions to the top? Startup cities is a way to do that. It's too much to go into, but I hope you read the book and, and, and tell me more about that. And in the, in, the, in the near term future, let's say mid to near term future, there are other more radical solutions like programmable politics. One of the, we talk about privilege a lot. One of the uh, most underrated bits of privilege that I have seen as someone who has lived uh, in Botswana, in Papua New Guinea, in Australia, Canada, the United States, and here, is passport privilege. I have multiple citizenships. I can travel almost anywhere in the world without a problem. And there are other people for whom a simple trip is a massive ordeal. And that is leaving money on the table. That is leaving talent, unable to attend the conferences, make the connections, and join our collective brain. And so there are ways past nation states that I describe. I talk about how we should be taxing. Income tax is fairly new, and this sounds, this sounds radical, it sounds utopian, but if you follow the book, you'll see that uh, certain taxes like income and sales are distortionary. They tend to make you work less or trade less. What you want are taxes on unproductive money, money that is just sitting there. Right? Land value taxes, for example. Get rid of all of the others. 
There's a specific case to be made for that. That It could be a talk unto itself, but please read the book and take a look. And how do we make future generations smarter? Schools are stuck in a factory farmer model, as my wife puts it. Right? Created for a time, it was literally the factory model created for producing good factory workers. And we're still in that model. Why does it go from nine to three? Right? Why did, well, what, three o'clock, what's going on? Why are we learning things in our schools and testing things that are available in the little black boxes in our pockets? The world's knowledge is literally at your fingertips. That is not what we should be training kids. Kids, many parents realize this, the kids are not being prepared for the world as it is today, let alone the world as it will be tomorrow thanks to AI and machine learning. But there are ways past that. So I, talked, so I was recently in Estonia. I was talking to uh, the, the former uh, Minister for Education and the, some of the people in what was called the Tiger League, where they went from a country where half the country didn't have a telephone to the highest number of $1 billion unicorn companies per capita on the planet and the highest performing students in mathematics, science, and reading in the Western world. How did they do that? They did it using these collective brain dynamics. I don't think they called it that way. They didn't think about it that way, but they identical to wherever we see these innovative processes. It lines up with ideas like startup cities. It's putting the trust back into teachers' hands. It is solving the problem that Venki Ramakrishnan uh, described. The A-level system is no longer fit for purpose. It solves that problem by giving greater autonomy to schools, but also creating incentives and sharing of knowledge. So I'm just going to quickly end. Uh, you can go check out some of the reactions from various fellows. You know, the danger when you trample over many fields is you get it wrong. So I sent it to experts, and I also got endorsements and just checked. You know, we have psychologists, we have historians, uh, we have corruption uh, policymakers, we have human evolutionary biologists, uh, historians, archaeologists, energy scientists, CEOs, philosophers, uh, business professors, and so on. Every discipline I touch on is covered, so I, I feel I feel comfortable. The endorsement suggests that the book works, which means it really is showing you the bigger picture and how these things connect to one another. So thank you very much. You know, they wanted me to talk for an hour, and I was like, I want to hear from you guys. I would like questions. So please, I hope that this leads to a lively discussion. We've got folks online. Thank you so much for joining online. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I would like to answer anything you have to ask. Thank you so much. Chairing, but I got you, you and Matthew are going to just have a, so an open chat to start. I, you know, it's, it's pretty free-flowing, so if there are questions from the audience, if there's questions online, and if there's things you know you and I want to discuss, we'll play it by ear. I feel slightly left out now. I've been given yeah. that I'm here to say, I mean, I please. think it's a, yeah. uh, a, a marvelous uh, book. Uh, I got a copy of it uh, when I was on holiday here with my son, who's nine years old and decided to come today when he said, what are you doing tonight, Dad? And I said, I'm going to, well, I thought I was going to have a conversation with Michael, but <laughs> as it turned out, I was going to sit on a stage while other people are. Um, and he said, he said, uh, but it's both he said, what? don't worry, no, we, no, can no, no, we can chat, we can chat. Um, he, he, are you hearing me? Are you working okay? Um, uh, and I said, I'm talking to somebody who I think has written one of the best um, non-fiction ideas books of the last 10 years. I got a copy of it when I was on holiday and I read it in a in a very rapid pace and realized immediately that it really subverts a lot of what we think about the world. The concept of EROI, Energy Return on Investment, I did an under, 
undergraduate degree in economics at Oxford University, energy was not mentioned at all. And though this is a London School of Economics. Um, there must be economists in the room. And the Cobb-Douglas production function that we use to make sense of economic growth and a great deal of economic phenomena had some a residual, the solo residual. But I think it, it, it left out 50% of the variance. But when you add energy to the equation, that variance is largely eliminated. I've just finished a, a visiting fellowship at All Souls and a wonderful college, but there might be some of you listening, I've enjoyed it enormously, a very prestigious academic institution. But to this day, energy is really lacking as a variable in understanding the modern world. For me, I think it's changed a little with the Ukraine war, and we have noticed that the world has struggled with high gas and, and oil prices. Um, but then it takes you to all of the other very interesting topics in, in Michael's book, the way he connects the energy surplus to psychology, polarization, which we're suffering in the world today. And you know, I think he does, to a large extent, take you by the hand and across the landscape of the modern world and offers you know, scintillating and empirically credible answers to some of these questions. Having said that, I do think it's worth tonight, am I right? Challenging some of this stuff. Do we, do, do, should we have a bit of that or not? Should we, should yeah, we, 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 should we give him an easy ride or should we? <laughs> By the way, who is in the audience? Michael said it's a very intelligent audience and I have my, no, I, I don't have my doubts. I can see the intellectual energy is, is oozing off you guys. But is it mainly uh, graduates and undergraduates at the LSE or are they, is, is it a, hands up if you're at the London School of Economics. It's basically incredibly That's intelligent people. Ted, you're the odd one out here, mate. No, you're not. You're going to get here. You're going to... So, Michael, let me, let me challenge you a little. Sure. Nervous. Uh, so, so you, this you, is unprepared. It's unscripted. It is unscripted. It's un but I, I think it's worth... You'll have coherent answers, I have no doubt. Yeah. I've given talks on Michael's book to academic audiences, and I'm kind of aware of the kind of pushbacks and the interesting questions that you're going to get when you go on Newsnight and... I hope on the Today program to defend your arguments, which bring in topical issues. Did you see Sola Braverman yesterday on multiculturalism? There's a chapter on multiculturalism in the book. You know, it's, it's highly pertinent. Um, but you mentioned, so EROI, let me just quickly, you know, this is one good way. You did it, I think, better in the book. You know, you've got, you've got if I can, may say so. Um, the book is definitely better than the it, talk. No, the you talk like was that, great. The talk was good. The talk was 9.9 .9 out of 10. The book was, <laughs> but you, you, ex, you expend energy to get energy back because you have to drill. And when we started getting oil, we got the easy stuff from near the surface. Now we're having to frack refined tar sands. It's very energy intensive. So we're only getting five barrels back for every barrel expended in the extraction process. This is declining, what Michael calls the collapsing energy ceiling. But society runs on the net energy, the energy surplus that we gain after extract. Think of a cheetah. If the cheetah expends more energy chasing an antelope than it gets back from the meat of the kill, it's going to die eventually. That is the fundamental thermodynamic point that I think sits at the absolute heart of this book. But on the statistics that you put up there, you have nuclear fission at 75 to 1. I've become so interested in nuclear fission that I spent the day last week with the managing director of Hinkley Point C mm. to go through the construction of a current nuclear fission station. 
But it struck me as I was walking around, and I'm going to let you back in now, um, <laughs> that if nuclear fission is 75 to 1, and the European country that has built the most nuclear fission stations is France, you'd expect its energy surplus to be driving growth of a kind that we wouldn't have seen during the Industrial Revolution and China wouldn't have seen during its rapid rise after the reforms of Deng Xiaoping. How do you explain that anomaly? So, I mean, people often ask me, like, how do we map this back onto countries? And what matters is how much energy that you have access to. So the kind of arguments that I'm making in the book are about excess energy for our species as a whole. And if you're part of the EU, and if you're part of France, you aren't just using all of that energy for yourself. You are having to sell it. You're having to deal with all of the problems that you have. And so it isn't a closed system. You shouldn't think about France as being uh, a single unit that's trapping and using all of that energy. Sometimes you do, you know, the fact that energy is so valuable and the fact that you have access to it can drive growth. For example, in this country, uh, when, you know, the coal mines were failing through the 60s and 70s, and it was really the discovery of, of North Sea oil that kind of rescued what was a decline for Britain until now when that has kind of also run out. Now that added you know, something like 10% to the, to the economy, but that wasn't the only thing going on because you can buy energy on the open market. The case that I'm making is that as a society, as a world, we're running out of excess energy. Now you, you brought up nuclear, which is incidentally um, an interesting point because Nuclear is incredibly expensive to make. We don't seem to do it incredibly well. And the time horizon on the payback is very far. So there's two issues there. One is that if, if we don't have the energy and cooperative capacity to think on those time horizons, then we never make those investments. That's the problem. It's hard for a hunter-gatherer to make the move to industrialization. They need to kind of get to agriculture first, have all of that cooperative capacity, and then they kind of get there. There are other ways to do it. So. Uh, Korea, for example, has been able to build nuclear power plants in the Middle East cheaply and quickly. China's got like about 228 nuclear reactors on the go. So clearly some portion of this is the regulatory environment that can be innovated on. But I think, the, to, sorry, to answer your, your original question, you shouldn't be looking at this as a, as, a, as a country as well, unless you were using all of that energy for yourself. But then it it's a great answer, but yeah. does it not then raise the question? He says, trying to get a column idea for this Sunday. Does it, not, does it not raise the question of why France was not using this? And, and this yeah. the surplus. I mean, you've got, you're right. Britain, as I understand the argument, is using coal during the Industrial Revolution to wonderful curves. Am I right? You know, all the way through the fall of Rome and the, the, the Black Death, and you've got this very shallow development of our species and then it takes off with the surplus energy and this starts in the it's effectively converting the stored solar energy to mechanical energy via yeah. the yeah. steam engine and then That's later right. yeah. the uh, electricity um, uh, but Eng Britain, England and Wales are using this coal for themselves yeah. why did France not follow that model? why did it just keep, why did it sell it? why did it just say look we've got this 75 surplus? Yeah. So, so I mean this is what I also mean where you know it's not like the one thing that explains everything right? Hunter gatherers have been walking on fossil fuels yep. and there are many countries in Africa that are incredibly wealthy, energy wealthy right? Uh, Russia too for example is incredibly energy wealthy but that's not the only portion of this equation the second half is the innovations with which you can use it. Sometimes those innovations come through uh, from other places. So, uh, for example, um, 
uh, Shell or, or BP coming into a country and exploiting the natural resources of that country, cooperating as a, as a, as a company at the expense of a country that doesn't have that cooperative capacity. So if you look at economic growth models, there are kind of three terms, right? There is, uh, you know, the technology, there's the capital, and there's the labor. And that, those terms are kind of, let's say, fuzzy, or we can, we can add some more to that when we start to think about culture. So you do need, for example, human capital. Like, you do need uh, education. You do need the software running in people's heads to have people working together uh, to capture that and control that. So one story that I tell in the book is the story of how North Sea oil was yep. used competitively. So that's right, exactly. <laughs> Completely differently between Britain and Norway. Sorry. Um, so Britain and Norway discover North Sea oil at roughly the same time. But Britain at the time was a deeply divided society along multiple lines, right? So after a long time, inheritance taxes were very high. Uh, the class system was starting to come apart, but it was, it was on the rise again in the, uh, the mid-20th century when that oil was discovered. There was also incredibly high levels of immigration to this country that weren't at the time. Britain hadn't found its new multicultural identity. There were horrendous inter-ethnic conflicts, right? Uh, things like, I think it was called Paki bashing and things like that, right? People ended up living in ethnic enclaves. So you had political polarization, you had class polarization, you had ethnic polarization. Now that was a very different story. When a country is so divided, it is difficult to make decisions that serve everybody rather than partisan and your particular group. Now contrast that with Norway, who discovered about the same amount of oil at roughly the same amount of time. They wanted to avoid what's called the resource curse, where discovering these kinds of uh, resources actually make things worse because of that partisan divide. Those partisan groups begin to fight over that, and it destroys the country. It makes things worse. Many African nations suffer from this problem. Not all, but many. Right? Norway, in contrast, was a highly homogenous nation with, uh, with, with far less uh, class division. And so they made a decision to create what was called the Ten Oil Commandments where that oil would be used to create the world's largest sovereign fund, and it could only be used for specific purposes like healthcare and education and roads, and could not be used for partisan purposes. Because they had this time horizon that was effectively infinite, Norway, when the, when the 2008 crisis happened, they had such a large surplus that while everyone else was selling, they were able to buy up the stock market so that this tiny country about the size of Los Angeles County bought up 1.5% of the world's companies, 1.5% of the world's stock market. Today, every Norwegian is born with an inheritance of around $250,000. That's their baseline. That's their starting point. And Norwegians will be rich forever. They will be highly educated. So they'll have all the pieces that you talked about. They will have cooperation. They will have the education and human capital. And they can choose to use it as they wish because they also have that energy. Now, Go. sorry, what I was going to say is what that also means, of course, is that once that energy runs out, they'll have all those other pieces, right? If you've got all those pieces, you can buy, as long as you're cooperating with people and you're not cut off by, I don't know, Russia or something like that, you can buy it on the market and then you can use that. So what the argument here is about, a glo it's a global argument. And what happens at the national level is a little bit more complicated. And it, but it's interesting. It's, it, yeah. it is interesting that when E-Roy is mentioned, people immediately move to a national analysis of growth. That's right. And it, is, it yeah. is plausible in the case of England during the Industrial Revolution. Only it, because it, it was more isolated. Yeah. Yes, but I think there are downstream questions about that. I mean, just, just one thing, yeah. the P word, honestly. Right? If you use that on the radio, you get cancelled these days. 
Is that, I can is, say, that, is that a bad I can, word? By the way, I'm I can not say, from I, here. I'm half Pakistani, so I can say that. I, I, that's okay, but I just want to warn you if I'm, this happens in the future. South Asian, that's good. I, I was glad to see no one looked as if they were going to walk out at that stage. You gave him the benefit of the doubt. I'm glad. I'm glad. By the way, is, is can, let's talk about. No, let's not talk about cancel. Do we want to talk about cancel culture? Is, it, is this? Is this are we bored of this now? Are you interested in it? Bo bored or interested? Bored. We're bored of cancel. Let, you want to cancel me? Um, let me let me ask you about the, the other thing that I think is of quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting anomaly. Michael's argument um, is that the innovative capacity of a society is a function of the net or surplus energy and the size of the population and the interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. What he and Joe Henrik in their wonderful paper called The Collective Brain. Wonderful paper, Innovation in the Collective Brain, but it's all covered in this book. Um, now, you would have thought, would you not, that the internet is connecting lots of brains all around the world in a way that was completely unimaginable 50 years ago. We can share ideas and cross-pollinate concepts and connect with people that we would never meet in the physical world and yet it seems to me that innovation hasn't really increased there's a famous quote by i think it's paul krugman the uh <laughs> what is the quote Lear? do you remember it's something we like see, we see we, yeah, we, we see we see the we see, we see the, the influence of the, of the internet, except, except the productivity that's figures right, yeah. now what is your explanation for this yeah so that's right so uh, I wouldn't say that innovation, like, so there has been what Tyler Cowen calls a, uh, the great stagnation, right? Uh, we're not seeing these effects on total factor productivity. And that's not to say there isn't innovation. There's been incredible innovation, right? We are able, grandparents can talk to their grandchildren across the planet. Uh, I use ChatGPT and large language models and AI every day. Do right? you? Yeah, I do. There's been, uh, and I talk a little bit about it in the book, but yeah. There have been massive innovations, but we don't see it in productivity. We don't see it in productivity, you're right. And that is because fundamentally there are two kinds of technological innovations. There are those that improve efficiency, if you like, and the, 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 the like productivity is going up, it's just the rate at which it's going up is, is slow, right? So it, it, it's slowing down basically. Because there is a, there's a limit to how efficient you can get. So in the book I talk about uh, my personal obsession with efficiency in my personal life. Uh, how I balance uh, trying to be a good academic, a good father, a good spouse uh, against all of the competing concerns in life. There's a lot of skepticism from Michael's <laughs> wife in the front row here. A little bit more on that beta value. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's a microcosm of what we can do, right? At the end of the day, I only have 24 hours in a day, yep. right? And I need eight for sleep. I just need eight for sleep. <laughs> um, I, try to be, I try to have efficient relaxation, but I need to relax, right, at times. Um, this is also true in society. Right? There's a fundamental limit to efficiency. At the end of the day, as I said, there's a certain number of joules or watts or however you want to call it to heat a room. There's a certain amount of energy that's needed to catch you across the planet. And so although there are these innovations, they are not energy innovations. The, they, and that, the, what drives that productivity are either these massive leaps in innovation because we're at that first era where there are big, big efficiency gains to be made, like for example, the price of solar right now, solar panels, nicely. We're in that early stage curve, but it's gonna slow down, right? Um, which is different to an energy innovation. 
So for our species, unlocking fire, as I said, was the first major. We grew our brains and shrunk our guts. We require cooked food today. And that's because we discovered fire. We could outsource the, uh, the, the, the uh, detoxification, yeah, detoxification the, the bioavailability of foods, if you like. Right? Uh, the next major unlocking was another solar technology. It was agriculture. Rather than wasting all that time hunting and gathering and walking around and roaming, we could stay in one place, make it all happen intensively. And we grew our populations on the back of that. We were less healthy. We were shorter. Uh, but we outcompeted hunter-gatherers because we grew massively. And the next major unlocking that truly drove productivity was the Industrial Revolution. I, I argue there's really only one Industrial Revolution, not four. The others were just kind of shadows of the first. Right? What we might be going through today, so I, I deny, so I disagree that we're not going through an innovation uh, period. We uh, definitely are. What I argue we're going through today in the book is a second enlightenment. Just as the first enlightenment was this connectivity as we never saw before, thanks to coffee houses, thanks to pamphlets being shared, thanks to philosophical and political arguments where people were at each other's throats in those coffee shops, we see the same thing today. We see it on Twitter. What's it called now? X. Right? Uh, we see it in Facebook groups. We see it on Substacks. Right? We see it on social media and the internet. We are going through a second enlightenment. The question is, will that second enlightenment lead to a true second industrial revolution that will actually drive up productivity? So uh, am I right in paraphrasing so, that if, if, if the energy ceiling is yeah. declining at, say, 10% a year and efficiency is rising at 10% a year, you get a net zero on productivity? That's right. Okay. So, so, if one so the argument would be, therefore, that if we connect the surplus energy of nuclear fission at 75 to 1, mm -hmm with the internet, then we will see. Correct. In a, no, Correct. Just explain how yeah. that happens. What is happening to the connection yeah. between these brains? Let's just, ima just, just, just imagine for a moment that we're living in a, in a, in a nuclear fission age. Presumably, we're still going to be in here with, with lights and microphones and, and people and connectivity. What is happening at a granular level to drive massive efficiency gains in Production. We, we have the resources to remove the frictions. You don't have to do everything yourself, right? Think about how much time a washing machine or a dishwasher saves you, right? Think about how much, uh, how easy it is if it were cheap enough to just fly across the world for a quick meeting and then come back, right? Think about how much easier it would be uh, if you had machines doing almost everything for you because the energy cost is just that low. Okay. Now you've got all of that extra time that you can put forward to doing what you want to do anyway, right? The, the invisible hand, if you like, working for yourself or whatever. It allows you, to, it removes all of those frictions. It removes, and that, and that productivity is driven by that multiplier effect. You know, um, there was a, Buckminster Fuller, you know, he called them these kind of like energy slaves. If you imagine yourself, you know, he imagined himself in traffic. And he imagined all of the things happening around him being done by people or by animals, right? Think of your car being pulled by 50, you know, how many, how, how many horsepower is your car? 250 or something? 250 horses driving for a month, you know? Uh, imagine humans uh, carrying out all of those tasks that the cranes are doing. How much slower is everything? The productivity is driven by that energy availability put to good use by human ingenuity. Right. Well, how does 
Yeah, let's. Tap into the collective yeah. uh, yeah. of the crowd. Uh, we'll be taking uh, maybe one round from the audience. Yeah, we can come back and go back and forth. Please, please. Yeah, if, you, if you keep an eye on the chat. So maybe uh, if we could just uh, take a few questions if anyone wants to start. Uh, yes, you, you're, you're sat there in the white top. Yep. Hello. Okay. Hi. First of all, thank you, Michael, for the talk. I think it was really inspiring, and I'm really looking forward to read your book. Although I feel like there's a giant elephant in the room that we haven't touched upon, and that's the earth is burning. <laughs> and I'm wondering how trying to increase our erode scores or trying to have more excess energy that will drive innovation and cooperation, yeah. etc., will actually mean in terms of the climate catastrophe yeah. that we're living in right now. Do you want to take it one at a time, or do you want to take it? Can I take that one? Because yeah, it is a right. wonderful question. I love it. What, what's your name, sorry? I'm Lucia. I'm Izia? Lucia. Oh, Lucia. Lucia, thank you so much. Yeah, so I deal with this in the book, right? Um, conservation is easier when you have greater resources and you have more energy. The cleanest countries in the world are the wealthiest countries. Because then you have the resources to not have to cut down your forests to feed your population and have hospitals working. You don't have to burn what is, you can, if you're Australia, you can rejuvenate the Great Barrier Reef. I was there recently after, you know, not being there for 15 years or something, and it was amazing the amount they had invested in that, right? When you have that level of resources, you have the power to direct it in any direction you want, including sequestering carbon, desalinating water, rejuvenating plants, whatever you want to do, you can do that. The dangers that I see in sustainability and ideas like degrowth is that they will incentivize a zero-sum world. They will fix the size of the pie such that anyone's gain is someone else's loss. If you look at Piketty's work, for example, economic growth leads to less inequality, right? You can, you can truly make something new. You can expand the space of the possible, as I call it, through that innovation in that world in a way that a fixed, degrowth, sustainable, whatever, is stagnation and zero-sumness. So the way out of the climate mess, in my view, is not cutting back. It's energy abundance. It's the next level of energy abundance so that we can grow. We can perhaps leave the planet. We can begin to mine asteroids. We can do whatever we want. We can re-green the planet, but that is a function of greater wealth, not less. So that's the answer. It's, it's, it's in much more detail in the book. But yeah, that's a, the answer. Let me just throw in a supplement, if I may. Yeah. The, but uh, am I, would you agree that in order to make things, you need material? Correct. And there is a limited amount of material on planet Earth. Correct. And some of these things are very important for the energy transition, Correct. these rare earth elements, which is actually at the heart of the Correct. geopolitical yeah. instability in Africa. We've seen the coups across the Sahel um, and in the Democratic Republic of Congo and beyond. Yeah. This is a fundamental issue. The Correct. Ukraine war is, an, is really a resource Correct. Correct. Yeah. war. Um, now, are you confident that as the economy grows and we need more material in order to build yeah. the things we need to provide the energy and secure the goods that we wish to consume, there'll be enough available yeah. resources on asteroids to fill the gap. Because it's <laughs> that like, wasn't the question I thought you were going to no, ask but, me, actually. But, but that, yeah. that is, that yeah, is yeah. one of the things you say in the book. And I've done yeah. a lot of background reading on this. I think yeah. it's an open and interesting question. Correct, correct. So, I, so the question, I'm going to answer the question I, that I thought you were going to ask, which is actually <laughs> an, another important question. Yeah, if, you, if you're not thinking of it, you should be. Uh, which is, are we confident that we would use that greater energy capacity mm. in ways that don't further destroy the planet? 
And that is a decision that we have to make. I think the norms are at least in place. But also the incentives too, right? We often do the cheapest thing. And we don't use actual enslaved labor or something like that because we use energy to do that work for us, right? So you can do things more cheaply than, than exploiting people if energy is that cheap and so is technology. You can transition away from, instead of just blowing up the land and gathering things up in this cheap and dirty way, you can use that energy in, 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 in more careful ways to mine uh, in ways that are less destructive, if you like. But your second question is, are there enough resources on other asteroids? And we don't know. We don't know. We have some reason to believe that at least a few asteroids are filled with yep. more, more minerals that we require than is present on Earth. Uh, astonishing amounts, but this is the next frontier for our species, right? This is the next level. I would say that if we don't do that, we're screwed anyway. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, because we know at least some of the asteroids do have resources available, it just leads to a brand new industry. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. And generally, I think anyone who's courageous enough to write a book called The Theory of, or Theory of Everyone <laughs> deserves a special recognition. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Um, could you please ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the concept of nation-state in that world? Because what, we, what seems more realistic is that the nation-state now seems to play a very important role in defining who we actually are. And maybe rather than believing in some utopian concept of cooperation of all species as homo sapiens, it may be more realistic and pragmatic to actually get to the table and recognize that the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans, they may have their own differences as nation states, and that will allow us to achieve our net zero targets, um, stick to our Paris climate agreements, and solve the future crisis. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, I guess sort of leading on from the question before about sustainability and climate change and sort of, the, I mean, I kind of I, I agree that we, you know, we need more energy, we need to use it in a more efficient way, but are there any, I don't know, maybe you touched on it in the book, are there like some practical ways in which you go about, you know, sort of getting this into practice? Like how can we actually use energy more efficiently? How can we invest more into, you know, nuclear fission or solar energy, especially in a developing context? Yeah. And then also like on the sort of immediacy of the issue, like whether this is going to happen at the pace enough to, you know, not yeah. screw over the world. Yeah. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. Uh, the nuclear fission is... I mean, they've been saying the same lies for over 30 years, saying they're eventually going to save, uh, solve that particular problem, and uh, been given billions of pounds in the meantime for very little actual real um, results. Uh, but the real, the real thing is that oil industry, capitalism, is hell-bent on destroying this planet, and we've incentivized them to do that by profit. So they're incentivized to keep destroying this planet. So surely... You must be proposing, if you want a productive future, that nationalisation of all the oil industries of the world, and instead of those trillions of pounds being given to themselves and whatever they're doing with that money, which is war, generally, uh, that money could be done to solve the horrors 
which the pollution, lung disease, um, destruction of the planet. Do you, would you agree nationalisation is a necessary measure? Thank you. Great. So, yeah, sure. Um, why don't I let me let me let me go backwards actually, if that's okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, th the thing about why I'm hopeful, especially about nuclear fusion, is for the first time we have a uh, we have a startup industry and, va and vastly more resources put into it. It's one of those things, right? Like until it happens, it happens. It, it may not. In the meantime, there you know we have nuclear fission, we have SMRs, we have micro reactors, we have technologies right here, right now that will get us through the gap. Just not that level of abundance uh, that we're going to reach. In terms of the investment in in energy. Uh, what should we be investing in? What can we do right now? I think, as I said, nuclear fission is our best bet. And it doesn't have to be these giant plants, right? So there are new uh, advancements in SMR, so small modular reactors, which are, you know, the size of a, a football stadium or a couple of football stadiums, versus uh, and micro reactors, which are the size of a shipping container or a, a large family car, right? And these are not like new technologies, like that's what powers submarines, nuclear submarines, that's what powers aircraft carriers. These are technologies that have been used in the military for a long time. They just haven't been put to use in, in the commercial world. So, um, you know, there are, there are clear paths that are what I call the adjacent possibilities in the book. Um, actually, I forgot to say something on the other thing. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure if nationalization is the way forward, but I think we can achieve the same thing through land value taxes, where people's use of resources, people's use of the land is heavily taxed. And in its value. And, and as a natural consequence of that, the natural resources under the land will be taxed. Um, on the final question is like, why, you know, should we be focusing on nation states or what role does the nation state play? Um, I actually have something more radical to, to say about that. Many of us live in a world that is, nation states don't matter anymore. As I said, you know, this kind of passport privilege where you can pretty much live anywhere in the world. I take nation states as a reality, I'm not proposing world government. In fact, what I do propose is the opposite, which is startup cities, empowering cities to grow, empowering new people to create new cities, to learn from one another in a kind of startup ecosystem where the risk is, exists at the city level, but the benefits are shared widely. So really, many of us today live in cities, if you like. And the, you know, I think the point at which we crossed uh, uh, more urban rather than rural is 2007. And you know by 2050, the vast majority of us will be living in cities. So giving cities greater autonomy to try to work things out, uh, while also cooperating at a higher scale through nation states and, and, and unions of nation states are better. Now the details of how you arrange that are very interesting. So I refer to China, uh, I get in a little bit of trouble because you know sometimes people don't like if you're positive, you say anything positive about China. But you know I refer to China as a, a kind of democracy by assent rather than uh, democracy by selection. It's unclear if people are very good at selecting leaders, but China you know, obviously suppresses people and, and so on. There's all kinds of terrible things to say about China. But if I were to say like one good thing, I would say that they have interesting policies that allow local level solutions to bubble to the top by, for example, civil examinations, by, for example, incentivizing uh, local leaders if they succeed to rise up through the, 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 the Communist Party. And, um, as long as the CCP is afraid of the people rising up, they're going to go in one of two directions. They're either going to try to push for greater economic growth or they're going to do something far more destructive. And so the hope is that they, they push toward, uh, toward greater economic growth. 
unclear. One cheeky thing I guess I say in the book, which I, you know, which I will say here, is that if you actually look at the United States versus China, the main difference is one party versus two. Because in the United States, if you want to make change on the left, you have to change the Democratic Party. If you want to make change on the right, you have to change the Republican Party. And those dynamics are not dissimilar to changing the CCP. Uh, there are better democratic models that are described in the book, uh, uh, preferential voting systems, for example, that are uh, more representative of a greater number of people rather than vocal, uh, well-coordinated minorities. There's much more I could say on that, but it's in the book, I guess. So, Eddie, do you have, do you have some questions from online? Yeah, just to bring folks in from... Um, hi, so these are some of the questions from online. So one of them is, in a theory of everyone, you posit that the need for energy is a foundational law of life. While this may be true on a global scale, how do you reconcile this with the localized social and economic inequalities that often arise from resource extraction within national boundaries? I mean, I, I kind of answered that. That's Samaya, by the way, who, uh, who is my excellent social media uh, assistant and one of our talented students in the department. Um, I, I kind of answered that before, which is that at a national level, um, all of these other dynamics are playing out, right? So the information that is in people's heads, the education systems, the level of cooperation, and so on. So take Russia, for example. Very energy wealthy. But... And it's not the case that Putin is carrying oil fields in his pockets, right? It's not the case that an autocrat is literally controlling these things. What an autocrat is doing is using those resources by the law of cooperation to cooperate at a higher scale than the population is able to engage in collective action to depose them. And so, if you like, Putin is paying his supporters, who are then paying their supporters, onward into this kind of patronage network of cooperation suppressing and, and leaving the vast majority of people poor. And that insight from the law of cooperation and, and, and energy leads to some interesting implications for things like foreign aid. Often what's missing from countries is the kind of competition that would lead to higher scales of cooperation and greater opportunities for people. But it's hard to escape that. And instead, the foreign aid is used by the incumbent party to maintain their power at the expense of the vast majority of people who remain poor. So in other words, oil companies come in, they cooperate with a small group of elites, those elites are better off, they use that money to support their supporters and their supporters, foreign aid assists with that too, and the countries remain poor and trapped in a, in a resource trap. Uh, yeah, so another question from Adrian Lee online is, what role does AI, AI play in the future of energy management? Um, yeah, so I mean, my hope is that AI really represents a fourth line of information that is able to kind of aggregate across all of human learning. And so in that sense, it might increase the pace of innovation, inc supercharge our collective brain, if you like, and hopefully lead us to some of those energy breakthroughs. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why we may or may not be incentivized to use them in that way. Um, I think I'm just going to leave that there because there's, there's a lot one could say. By the way, Matthew, if you want to jump in at any point, please do. Well, AI, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty nervous about it myself. I mean, I, I'd love to go. I mean, first of all, I was struggling to read the audience there on, the, uh, on one of the answers you gave, Michael. What was it on now? Um, on, on China and the United States, that the, the difference is China has... Uh, I mean, it looked as if you agreed with this, that the fundamental difference was... was did, did, was there any dissent in the room, or you just? I, I, I have to, I, I'm not sure. I quite agree with that. On, on the na on the nation on the nation state, I think it's. A, I think we underestimate in the world today 
when you, I mean, Michael and his colleague Joe Henrik have written extremely persuasively about the uh, development of cooperation through time. Uh, Hunter-gatherers giving way to clans and tribes after the development of agriculture effectively cemented through kin, rituals, ancestor gods. These different ways to unify people who don't share sufficient genes to drive that kind of cooperation, but were able to do so in the context of intergroup competition. Now, I think the nation state is, is a miracle of the modern world, that we're bringing very large numbers of people to solve collective problems at scale. And I think we forget in, I, 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 my father's Pakistani, my mum's Welsh, quite an unusual background, but I was born here. And we, I think it's fair to say, got rid of the indigenous tribes reasonably early through intermarriage, the ban on cousin marriage, I think was a very big part of that. If I'm moving too fast, let me know. But effectively, this forced people to marry across tribal lines and it unified the nation. We had a common currency in the 11th century, standard weights and measures. Um, obviously, there was economic inequality, but there was an emerging national identity reasonably early. I think it is highly improbable that we'll move to a world government without massive risks to the world from the concentration of power within a single elite. I, I, I agree, I, by the way. I, but I also fear that many of the... We've interested in Michael's view on this. That we have reached a stage in civilizational trajectory where many of our problems are collective action problems expressed at the level of the whole world. AI is a classic example. We used to have bows and arrows, so individuals could kill small groups of other individuals. Now we have something that could potentially destroy the world. A lot of experts in AI feel this. But if we try and combine to create a moratorium, call me cynical, but I think it's possible that one nation state would go rogue, develop their technology, and then turn on everyone else. Almost all of our major challenges in the world today are free rider, collective action problems expressed at the level of the world. And I don't see myself, less optimistic than Michael, a very clear route out of this impasse. And I think that it is not impossible um, that after 250,000 years of our species, we're entering what could be the last few paragraphs of the story. If anyone can tell me a plausible explanation of how we escape from that fundamental issue, yeah. Michael can kick off. I mean, you know, in, in part two of the book, I, I do describe that that is one possible scenario, but the one that I would very much like to avoid <laughs> for all our sakes. Uh, and, and that is what part two is about. You know, it's like, how, how might we, we avoid that? Um, I mean, you know, I think one of the things is what if your solution or your model of change requires a massive shift in human nature or a violation of fundamental evolutionary principles, you, you've lost from before you've even started, right? Communism is probably a good example of this, right? You're lost before you've started, or it's going to require atrocious amounts of, of control in order to kind of push this vision that you have of the world. In the book, I describe one of the reasons that I switched from kind of engineering to working on the problem of culture and, and human behavior. Uh, I watched Al Gore's documentary in 2007, An Inconvenient Truth. And I started reading the IPCC reports, I started reading the Pentagon reports, and I bought it. I was like, climate change is a serious threat, and everybody is so focused on mitigation. But are we really going to slow the economy to save the planet? It just seems to me that in a world in which every country is trying to outcompete every other country, every company is trying to outcompete every other company, and everybody wants more than their neighbors, 
no amount of finger wagging was going to work. No amount of documentaries was going to take us to where we needed to, to be. And so just, it was great, we should try, of course, but just as much as that, we should be thinking about climate preparation, right? What does it mean to live in a climate change world? How do we save civilization when millions of people are underwater and displaced? How do, how do, when a million Bangladeshis are underwater and streaming into India, how does India react to that? What happens to Pakistan, the Middle East, and then Europe, right? Well, how do we handle that? Do we have the cultural technologies, the, the behavioral science to be able to preserve our ability to govern and work together under those kinds of conditions? That's the, that's the, that's the issue in the book, right? So I, I think what we need is, is greater alignment and it is almost impossible to do under conditions of resource constraints. Because when we compete with one another, the scale at which we end up cooperating depends on the scale at which I, when we work together, what I can unlock in this sized company or this sized project is larger than what I could get by myself in a smaller group or even in a larger group. And so the path out, Matthew, I think is, is clean growth where we have enough abundance that we are incentivized to work to, like we are competing with each other in dirty ways because that's what we have access to. But we would love, would you not like to live in a clean... It's a, do you know, yeah. I, I, look, you can see I've absorbed the book, I hope, <laughs> in, 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 in great detail. And I, and I think it's an it's a entirely plausible argument that with more net energy, we can cooperate to unlock more together, even when divided by the number of competing individuals than we could ever get on our own. Do you see that logic? The more energy we've got, the more we can extract by yeah, work. Yeah, think of an organism, right? It, it can grow, and when it's, when it's under-resourced, so it doesn't have enough food, that's when the lower scales, the bacteria, the cancers begin to win. When it doesn't have enough resources, it's outcompeted by other animals fighting with it who are more energy-rich. And by the way, I mean, the, the, the scale of the book is incredible because you look at the research on cancer now where they are beginning to look at it as an evolutionary system, not single somatic mutations, but cooperative groups of small cells that are effectively working together to hijack the shared lifeblood of the bigger organism. Because our bodies are multicellular. You're an, you're an Amazon brain for us. Right, tr trillions yeah. of cells. So, I mean, I really, look, let me say that. I'm gonna have to go with it. My son's gotta get the H20 from all of it. But you know, <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna, if I could leave you. Okay, one question though on yep. this. I've been thinking about it a lot. Is you would have thought, as the energy got bigger, we would get higher scales of cooperation. We did. We did, but think about European states. So Germany unified in the late 19th century, Italy did do. So it's going to be part of your argument. But there was ferocious warfare Correct. at the same time. So you're going to say that's that right. it's a higher scale of warfare. Okay, that's right. All right. Exactly. So, then the, so then let me, which I think is a plausible, I mean, there are some yeah. anomalies with, the, with that, but, but let, I, I'm, I'm I'll, say something really, I'll say something really quickly about that, you know, which is, you know, counter uh, the story of a decline in violence and World War One and World War Two yeah. and other things as yeah. blips. Yeah. They're part of the same process because, you know, in two, do you remember in 2001, we were all like, oh, my God, religion. It's like just, you know, it's, it's all about destruction. We need to get rid of religion. It was it's, it's a huge mistake, actually, to think about it that way. Every scale of cooperation is also a scale of conflict. We are a competitive species. We compete with one another and then we cooperate to compete with one another just at a higher scale. We used to be families against families, kin against groups against kin groups, princedoms against princedoms, tribes against tribes, kingdoms against kingdoms, nation states against nation states, and now large unions of nation states bound by a common religious and cultural history against other large unions of nation states bound by a common. Which means the world today is more peaceful but also more dangerous 
because if there is a, a next conflict, it will be much larger. One thing I think that sometimes, uh, when you think about competition, some types of competition are really forms of cooperation. If you co compete within a set of rules, that's one thing that I think um, it, it's quite difficult to unpick. I want to leave you with this, okay, because you'd stay. I'm going to take Ted, two minutes. Right, I want, to I want to leave you with this is a really important thought, and I should have made this clear at the beginning. I genuinely think it's impossible to understand the world. The world is complex. If you think about what is happening, we've, we've talked today about AI, multiculturalism, energy, the transition, climate change, cooperation, polarization, what people are calling political decadence in the West. I think it's a fair criticism. There are no books out there that really are capable of providing a coherent explanation for all of these phenomena. It's helped me enormously in my writing and my thinking about the world. So I want to leave you with the thought, you really need to read the book. I'll say this, that speech didn't give it any, it's not because of Michael's lack of articulacy. You've got to spend, I read it twice very quickly. We spent two or three days together, just sitting and talking through the ideas. I think I gave him the David Foster Wallace quote at the beginning of the book. Am I right, Michael? You did. He didn't He's attribute that. Did he attribute that? He didn't, did he? It's in the acknowledgement. Please read, the, absorb all the, you know, the, 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 the aspiring students in this room. You want to understand the world. You know, science is moving towards interdisciplinary thinking. You stay within your subject silo, forgive it, it's Liam, isn't it? Yes. Forgive me, Liam, but you stay, you stay, I know that you don't believe this, but you encourage him. You stay there. Most of the problems we face are complex and interconnected. 95% of the hit papers in science, as measured by citations, are written by multidisciplinary teams. Because the problems we face don't sit within the categories we impose upon the world. And so I want to encourage you, get a sense of the scope. You'll understand your areas more, uh, I think, by having that range you'll be able to collaborate more effectively, you'll be able to find partners to work together with, connecting your knowledge with theirs. I talk a bit, a bit about this in, in Re Liam, thank you, in Rebel Ideas, described by Michael as a masterpiece, he's probably never read it, but it's a good one. <laughs> uh, do buy that, but look, Michael, great job. I'm gonna have to- I did read it again. Yeah, you did, you did. <laughs> thank you, Michael, good luck. Buy it, buy and read the book, and, and, and encourage your fellow students to read it. We need a revolution in science. Science has done a great job. There is massive more potential for science and scientists. Drives me nuts when you go to academic institutions and people are too narrow. It's easy to want to be an expert in a small pond, hanging out with people who think in a similar way, telling you things you already know, speaking the same language. It's profoundly confining. The evidence suggests it's so you can break out in a rational way to cooperate with people with shared problems. That's when the magic happens, and Michael's book helps to unlock that. Hold on. I can't thank you. what Matthew said, he is very much appreciated, acknowledged in the acknowledgments. And he was pivotal, actually. He really helped me to convey some of these points in a way that was much more accessible. I can't thank him enough. Thank you so much for coming, Matthew. So that brings us to the end. I mean, that was such a fascinating session. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for being here. Uh, the book is outside. I totally agree with everything Matthew said. This is a really important book uh, at a really important time. So let's give a huge round of applause for the author. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.